All right, let me just, you, you could ask as you go on, but let me talk to you a little bit more about the other gifts that are not mentioned in, in, in the book of Corinthians. And some gifts, some other activities or abilities that might be gifts. I call them possible gifts. All right. But if you go over to Romans chapter 12, we have a gift that is mentioned there. Romans uh, chapter 12 is a whole section there. Paul says, for through the grace given me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. But to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function. Notice the word, I like that word, function. So we too are many, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. He's teaching the same thing here in Romans as he did in Corinth. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. See, according to the grace given to us. Now when we get into Romans sometimes, we're going to talk about this as well. Let each exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his service. He who teaches, in his teaching. He exhorts, in his exhortation. He who gives, with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And let me pick out the ones in this section that is not mentioned in 1 Corinthians. The first one is the gift of exhortation. Now this word, or the gift of encouragement, this is what Brother Joe says he, he has. This word exhortation comes from the uh, same Greek word we get the comforter from, talking about the Holy Spirit. He is the encourager. He is the one who exhorts us in a, comfort, in a comforting manner. The Holy Spirit is seen as our heavenly advocate or paracletos. All right? The word exhortation means, um, or when it talks about a person, when it talks about the Holy Spirit as being the exhorter or the comforter, it means one called alongside to help or provide comfort. This is the verse that... Uh, the Christian Counseling Center has, I believe, as their key verse. The one who comes alongside others to provide help that they cannot give themselves. All right? Now, so I think it refers to the special spiritual ability to encourage, comfort, and admonish the people of God in a loving and acceptable manner. In other words, sometimes we think that encouragement is only saying nice things. But sometimes we're encouraged by saying difficult things in a nice way. You see what I'm saying? In other words, it involves uh, encouraging a person even if they're involved in things that are not in keeping with the word of God. Now just some ideas here. that People with this gift readily come alongside those who are discouraged to strengthen and uplift with word and action. The emphasis here is on readily. It's almost an automatic thing they do. They also challenge the discouraged to trust in the promises of God in a loving way. Nancy and I just went to the hospital today to visit her, her nephew there who was going through a difficult time. And that's what we were trying to do with the help of God, to, to encourage him because of the difficulties he was facing. Believers with this gift also encourage believers to action 
in believing and applying biblical truth. They are not afraid to confront when sin is involved, but do so in a loving and compassionate manner. They are willing to trust when others are afraid to do so. And remember, Barnabas is a good illustration of this. None of the apostles wanted anything to do with Paul, even after he said he was a believer, he had seen Christ. None of them. But Barnabas, and that's why he's called the son of what? The son of encouragement. That's his name. You see, Barnabas. And uh, so that's what that gift has to do with, the gift of exhortation. Also in Romans 15, we have the gift of giving. I believe that this gift is a special spiritual ability to joyfully and liberally give of one's resources for the benefit of the body of Christ and others without a desire for praise or remuneration. Now, there are a lot of qualifiers here. Joyfully, liberally, for the benefit of the body, without a desire to be recognized. You see, uh, people with this gift regard God as a source and owner of their possessions. They don't see as what they have belonging to themselves. You know, we like to talk about the tithe and all of that and how much we are supposed to give him. You see, uh, what do we, what percentage we need to give? I think when you really look at it, we should look at it, what a percentage we should keep. Because everything belongs to God. Then the idea 10% is his and the rest I could. No, no, that's a misunderstanding of the fact that God owns everything we have. And we are stewards and we handle his resources, not ours. These folk manage the resources with the objective of helping Christ build his church and to meet the needs of his body. We have individuals like that in this assembly who are ready and available to give as soon as they are made aware of a need in the assembly. We have others who will complain and cry and know that person wants up again, they ask and again, all that kind of a thing. You see, but persons with the people with gift, they give, even though sometimes they know they're being taken. Hmm. Persons with the gift of giving, I believe, are susceptible to being used. Because they're so ready to give. And people take advantage of that, unfortunately. God gives wisdom, though, of course. I believe also that uh, the person with the gift of giving may also have the gift of faith, the gift of mercy, and the gift of helps. Because all of these things are entwined in this idea of giving. You want to give because it helps somebody. You see somebody in need, so you have mercy upon them, or whatever it is. So I see all of these gifts having a play in the person who truly has the spiritual gift of giving. Again, I believe in my understanding of the gifts now, God could touch the heart of any individual any time to cause them to give in a way they never thought or dreamed that they would, and to do so liberally and to do so joyfully. But that might be the only time they do it. <laughs> you see, just to meet a particular, a special, a specific need. That's the difference, by the way, between a person gift and a gift of ability. A person gift, you're always uh, demonstrating that trait. With uh, the gift of ability, the Spirit of God does it at particular times. And sometimes he does it in more, in a greater way than he did it before. That's the gift 
of giving mentioned there. Also mentioned in this passage is the gift of mercy. I define this as the special spiritual ability to show practical, compassionate, and cheerful love towards suffering members of the body of Christ. Practical, compassionate, and cheerful love towards suffering members of the body of Christ. Now, there's a little, this is different from the gift of helps, which is general in its focus. The gift of helps is general, but mercy is concerned primarily with helping the poor, the sick, the aged, the orphans, the widows, those people who are in pain if you want. You see, those people who are in dire straits physically, emotionally, or whatever. And so this is specific. This has to do with mercy. People with this gift instinctively seek to alleviate the pain or discomfort of members of the body of Christ. They just do it automatically. They see somebody hurting, they see somebody in pain, physically or whatever, they, 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 they go to them right away and try to offer help to remove that discomfort. They seek to comfort the lonely, the neglected, or the forgotten. These are people who go look for those people that we normally overlook ourselves. They seek them out. They naturally respond to meet the needs of the oppressed or those being taken advantage of. In other words, like some say, they always take care of the underdog, the disadvantaged, the oppressed. Now this is concerned with social, or they will be concerned with social issues that affect the welfare of the homeless, the orphans, the widows, and so on. That's how those who have the gift of mercy will respond, or how that's the traits that you will see. That's the gift of mercy, and I'm going to go into it uh, quickly so you get some idea uh, of um, the different gifts that are not mentioned in First Corinthians. Those are mentioned by Paul in the book of Romans. He's very specific. They are gifts. Now, there are some others that I call possible gifts, because they're not called gifts as such. But the context seems to indicate that they are. And maybe we could discuss this as we go on. For instance, look at First Peter chapter 4, verse 9. It says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterance of God. Whoever serves, let him do so by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. You see, that's the and purpose for spiritual gifts, to glorify God by building up the body of Christ. To whom belongs the glory, dominion forever and ever. Now notice the topic says, be hospitable to one another without complaining, as each one has received a special gift. You see that? So it seems to say hospitality is a special gift, and we need to exercise it. And so I define it as the special spiritual ability to open one's home and to provide resources to care for the visitor or the stranger, especially Christians. Because in context, that seems to be the emphasis. In other words, going back to Acts chapter 2, our home is not our home. Our home is the home of members of the body of Christ. Remember what they said? They didn't see anything as being their own personal. 
but they shared, they gave as each one had a need. You see? And so it appears that hospitality is a spiritual gift. And people with this gift provide an immediate sense of acceptance, worth, concern, and value to all members of the body. This was especially needed in the days when there was a lot of itinerant preachers going around. And there was a lot of movement. And of course, they didn't have any hotels or motels or anything else like that. And so uh, the homes of Christians were, uh, Paul encouraged the Christians to open their homes. And when you read the book of John, you'll see, especially about um, preachers and teachers, about uh, uh, opening the homes and, and, and caring for them. Uh, actually, um, you have some humorous things in the early writings of believers in the church. It says, but now... If he comes in, he stays more than three days, you let him go, put him out. <laughs> and in other words, don't let him come and stay too long. You know, and although you, although you are taking care of them and so on. These folk with the, this gift enjoys meeting new people and making them feel welcome and at ease in new surroundings. And when I say that, I think right away of Colleen and, and, um, and Ron. That's that's them. I mean, you know, they, they just they just open not as others too, please. But I'm just focusing on them because it's so it's so evident. They seek ways to connect believers together into meaningful relationships. That's what I see as the gift, the possible gift of hospitality. What do you think? You think hospitality is a gift? Pastor on it. You agree? Boy, oh boy, he agreed. That's great. Any other comments? I think the context really demonstrates that as far as I'm concerned. Comments, questions? All right. Now here's one. The gift of celibacy. The gift of singleness. Any single people here? Some of you say, boy, I hope I didn't know gift. I'm not in my gift. Here's why. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 7. Yet, I wish that all men were even as myself. I myself am. He was single. However, each man has his own gift from God. One in this manner and another in that. Now, actually, to be absolutely biblical, I should also include marriage as a gift. Because he is implying that if singleness is a gift, which is this manner, then marriage, which is another is also a gift. You understand what I'm saying? So it appears that both marriage and singleness is a gift, if you follow it in this passion, in this in this sense. And so I I paraphrase it in this way, or I give this definition: singleness or celibacy, the gift is a special spiritual ability to live a single lifestyle for the sake of the gospel. Now that's the key. And let me give you some scripture for that. Matthew 19. For there are eunuchs. Now, you know, a eunuch in one sense, we could call a single person. Because, uh, I don't want to go into all the details here, but you know what a eunuch is. It's a person who cannot in any way generate or regenerate or have children. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's wombs. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by man. And there are also eunuchs, now notice this, who made themselves eunuchs. Why? For the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this. 
let him accept it. See, Jesus knew not, not too many people can want to accept this. This is, a, this is one of the hard sayings of Jesus. But this is also, and you put it in the context, a high call to discipleship. You choose the, the, you choose the hard way, the difficult way to, uh, to serve Jesus Christ. But it's a choice. You notice that. You make a choice to do. But to make that choice, you have the ability given to you by God. That's why it's a gift. And the reason why is because it's for the kingdom of God. Now, Paul talks about the same thing in, uh, in, in, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about things of the world, how he may please his wife. I'm sure that is true of pleasing your husband too, by the way. All right? Now, this is not a negative statement. He's not saying it's wrong for a married person to pay attention to their spouse. He's just simply stating the fact. If you are married, you have a primary concern, and that's your spouse. That's what he's saying here. Another way, look at what he says. His interests are divided. Divided between whom? Divided between Christ and the spouse. Now, he isn't saying that is bad, mind you. He's just saying that's a fact. All right? The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is seemly and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. So you see, the key here is wanting freedom to serve God without any, uh, any uh, other attachments, you see. And he says, now, if you can make that choice, that seems to be a gift. So people with this gift would seem to have a strong desire to serve God without undue distraction. These folk will also do not have a strong sex desire. Now, sometimes when we do marital counseling and talking to singles, this is one area we try to talk about. Some people have the idea that everybody's sex desires are the same. Strong. All the hormones are running and all on the same, you know, that's not true. You see, you have extremes, you have moderate as well. And you have, uh, with, with sex drives, you'll see actually uh, veins as you get older. Um, and stop shaking your head over there, but that's, that's true, all right? So, but you'll see that. They have a strong commitment to what I like to call radical discipleship. In other words, um, they're putting everything aside for the sake of serving Jesus Christ. They make the hard choices. When we choose the easy road, they, cho- they choose the hard road and so on. This is what I call the possible gift of celibacy. Now, here's another gift of men. I left it out in my, I only mentioned it quite briefly this morning. And I did it intentionally, but I thought I'll at least talk to you about it so you'll know why. Because what I'm going to say now is so different in a sense than what is normally done because we assume things so readily. All right? And, and that is the gift of the evangelist. 
the gift of the evangelist. In Ephesians 4.11, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, notice what? Some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. They're listed there as those gifts of men that God gave to the church for its establishment universally. And this is a universal passage. This is not a local passage. This has to do with the church universal. And also when we talk about gifts, we have to be sure we distinguish what is being focused on here. Notice they're placed third in this listing. And it's the only place the evangelist is listed. The evangelist is not listed any place else in gifts. Nowhere else. Let me give a definition and I'll talk about it. An evangelist is an event. And remember, now notice, I'm not talking about the gift of evangelism. I used to. But I don't think there's such a thing. It's the gift of evangelist. But I don't think anywhere in the Bible it tells you about the gift of evangelism. We'll talk about that in a moment. You see, that's the strange thing. All right? But I'm talking about the biblical text itself. Not what we think about it, but what the Bible itself seems to support. I see as an evangelist as an individual who is endowed with a special spiritual ability to effectively proclaim the gospel of Christ to unbelievers everywhere and to equip believers to do the same. You will very rarely hear about any evangelist who wants to equip the church to do evangelism. But yet in the context of Ephesians 4, they have the same obligation as the apostles, the prophets, and pastor teachers to equip the body of Christ to grow. You see? Normally when you think of evangelism, you think it's outside the church. Isn't that right? Outside. And that's a part of it because we'll see that illustrated in scripture. Now, you'll see as it goes on that the task of doing evangelism is passed on to the pastor teacher. Or to the elders. Because Paul instructs Timothy to do what? Do the work of an evangelist. But he doesn't define what that work is. He says, do the work. But he doesn't tell you what the work is. Alright? Now the two ideas that seem to be involved in the text that we have on evangelism. is the kind of message that is preached. The kind of message has to do with what we call the good news about Jesus Christ. It also has to do with the places where the message is proclaimed. Not only one place, all over, but still is a focus of building up the body of Christ as well. Perhaps rather than see them as being building up the body inwardly, it's building up the body outwardly. In other words, quantitatively rather than qualitatively. Uh, we'll come back to that some other time. Now here's why I believe that evangelist in the scriptures is difficult to define biblically. There's only one person described in scripture as being an evangelist. Who is that? Philip. Philip. He's the only one who is described in scripture. Now when you go to Acts 8 and you look at his ministry you will see that what characterized his ministry was not only preaching the gospel to the unsaved, 
but it was involved with miracles, wonders. Just let me read a passage from me, and I wish you would read the whole chapter. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. By the way, that's the word for evangelism too. The word could actually be, say, evangelizing. Preaching the word is what evangelism is. Now notice, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and, notice now, saw the signs which he was performing. So signs were a part of the work of an evangelist. The one recorded in scripture, anyway. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there were much rejoicing in that city. And it goes on to tell you about, you remember he met this girl who was a sorceress, you remember? And the confrontation with Simon, remember? Philip is involved in all of that, right? And he tells you how he dealt with them and how he demonstrated the power of God. Dismiss. And then, of course, it tells you this exciting thing that the Spirit of God took him from preaching to hundreds and took him into the desert to talk to one. But notice, it was a miraculous event. Now, when you put this together and trying to define what an evangelist does and what is to be a part of the ministry, you cannot get away from the idea that the miraculous was a part of it. And when you see that they are named with apostles, prophets, and pastor teachers to building up the church and so on, especially with pastors, I'm sorry, especially with apostles and prophets in the establishing of the church, you get a whole different picture. In fact, there's some Bible scholars who believe that the evangelists along with the, I know you've never heard this before, they believe that the evangelists along with the apostles and the prophets were done away with after the establishment of the church. As far as men gifts were concerned. The function is to be done. How do we know that? Because he tells uh, uh, Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. Who was Timothy? Timothy was an elder. Timothy was a pastor. But he was commanded to do the work of an evangelist. What is the work? The only way you could find out what the work of the evangelist is by looking at the life of Philip. Because he's the only example that we have in Scripture. If you look outside of it, that's a different story. If you look inside Scripture, Philip is the only one. And if you're going to define the work of the evangelist according to the Bible, you'll have to look at his life. Now, let me show you something strange here. Here's a diagram, I think. These are all the references to spiritual gifts in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. 1 Corinthians 12, 29, 30. 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. Ephesians 4 to 11. Romans 12, 6 to 8. And 1 Peter 4, 9 through 11. Notice the listings. In 1 Corinthians 12, you have apostles, prophets, teachers. Right? You have miracles, gifts of healings, and so on. Um, and when you come to verse 29 and 30, you have the listing again in the same way. 
Now, when you come to verses 8 through 10 of chapter 12, you have the gifts listed in a different way. Word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, gifts of healings, working of miracles, prophecy, distinguishing of spirit, kinds of language, and so on. In other words, the priorities, the, 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 the uh, listing is different. But now look at Ephesians 4.11. Apostles, prophets, normally the pastor teacher come there, or the teacher. But here we have evangelists. That's the only place he's mentioned in that fashion. When you go to Romans 12 that we looked at, you have prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, showing mercy. That's the ones we looked at right then. But I want you to see here, this idea of the evangelist, really from a biblical point of view, not that much is said about the work of an evangelist. Other than what is described in the, in the, in the story concerning Philip. And you have to get it from there. That's why I believe we need to take a whole new look at the work of an evangelist. All right? For you Bible students, you could look at that later. Let me show you the first Peter 4, then we'll close out. Peter, he's really one besides Paul who deals with the gifts. This is how he schedules or outlines them. Now, the listing of the gifts according to categories given by Peter uh, here um, shows what I call the function or the different roles. He seems to list the gifts in two major headings, speaking gifts and serving gifts. This is Peter. He, call, he lists under speaking gifts, apostleship, prophecy, teaching, evangelism, pastor teaching, the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, exhorting, languages, tongues, interpretation. Serving gifts, gifts of healing, working of miracles, helping, administering, serving, leading, showing mercy, giving, faith, distinguishing of spirits. Now, what I'm saying is now, this is not inspired. But Peter gives two major headings for gifts, speaking gifts and serving gifts. If you take the gifts we've looked at and you put them together, this is how you could outline them. Under speaking and under serving to fall in line with what Peter is talking about. The point is this. Spiritual manifestations or spiritual gifts are a vital part of the church of Jesus Christ. For it to be built up, for it to grow, for it to mature. Is very important. And that's why this morning the last passage, last verse in chapter 12, say that we should desire, we should desire to see that the gifts that edify are prominent in our meetings. The gifts that edify. Not the gifts that don't. Because that, those are essential to the church. And that's the practical outlook here. We don't know how many gifts there are. It isn't that precise. We cannot be 100% sure on even the definitions here. But we have to be true to Scripture as much as possible, not imposing our thinking, our thoughts upon the words, but rather what's the meaning uh, as far as the text itself is concerned. And that's what we try to do as we go through the interpretation of uh, the gifts uh, in First Corinthians. Uh, we'll do the same thing when we come to chapter 14, and especially when we deal with chapter 13. We're going to be dealing with the meanings. And you're going to see chapter 13, I hope, in a whole different light. In a whole different light. All right? Anyway, 
we will stop there for now. All right.